first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not among his prosperity, nor according to his dominion, with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces. For a daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north and make an agreement. But he shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their prince, princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to a kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Whoever his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south, the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. And the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of the enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a, great, a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops, troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set up a face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright one ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of woman to destroy it. But he shall not stand with him or before him. After this he shall return his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring and reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land.
but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not the anger, but not in anger or in battle. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just come before you with a thankful heart, Lord, and we're all here for a reason. You brought us here, Lord, and we just pray that the seed of your word falls on our hearts, Lord, soil tilled and ready to grow. And Lord, that we just not hear these words here, but these become part of our lives and we go out and share as you've instructed us to do. Lord, I just pray that you touch Jackie with the Holy Spirit as he brings forth your word to help us to understand and to grow through your word and to know you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So you guys got all that? We good? I can uh, sing a song. We can close out and head out. Man, uh, when, you, when we come to look at this scripture, there's a couple things I want you to, to remember. One, I want you to follow with me one verse at a time as we work our way through. Because this section of Daniel 11 is why all the critics of Daniel want to say Daniel was written after the fact. Because as we follow our way verse by verse, each verse is a fulfilled prophecy of history dealing with two kings, two prominent kings that came out of Alexander's um, division of his empire, the the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So we'll be talking about those, and don't worry if you don't know what that is. But here's what I want you to, to understand from this. We're looking at history in 1 through 20. And we're going to look at a little more history in 21 through 36. But the history of 21 through 36 is dealing with a particular person. We've talked about him before. His name is Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. Yeah, I want to say it a different way, but that's not it. So Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes just means glorious one or illustrious one. So Antiochus is going to be 21 through 35. 36 to the end of the chapter goes yet future. And as we look at it, here's what we, I want you to understand. We look at the first 20 verses, and you see how exact it fits. And then next week, we'll look at 21 to 35, and we'll see how exact that fits. Then when we come to 36 to the end of the chapter, I'm going to say that part's going to fit the same way. As we look at this, remember Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. One vision. One vision given to Daniel... By, I believe, the Messiah. I believe the one that we're looking at is the pre-incarnate Christ. Why? Because a very similar vision is given to another beloved of God. Right? You remember the other one? The disciple whom Jesus loved. What, what's his name? John. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, in a 95 AD, wrote a book. That book is called Revelation. Revelation. In which, what? Jesus Christ reveals... To John, all these things which must shortly take place. All these things that must happen. So when we look at Daniel 10, 11, and 12, you're going to see Jesus, I believe, giving Daniel this, this prophetic view, not only all of its future to Daniel, right? You with me? But also moving through Daniel, past Daniel, to the final, uh, 70th week. 
from Daniel chapter 9. So we see it. That's why Daniel and Revelation fit so nicely together. By the way, for those who are interested, Revelation starts Wednesday. So we'll start Revelation chapter 1. Um, I doubt we'll be in chapter 2 the following Wednesday, but we'll still be in Revelation. So if you guys want to join us, that'll be uh, Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. So let's take a look at what he's got for us here. But I just want you to see that God is the one that holds all of history together. And it's all history to him. You get what I mean? It's all history to him. He knows where all the pieces fit. Now you and me, I turn on the news and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going on. I, I, it's like I look at the dark and darker. And, and blacker, blacker, or crazy and crazier. I don't know where we're going, what's going to happen. But here's what I know. The master of the universe... God Almighty, He holds it all together. And we're moving from the beginning to the conclusion exactly how He wants us to get there. I can trust in Him that the Master of History knows what's going on. Hopefully, as we work our way through, you'll see it. And it won't be as confusing as you maybe are right now. So let's take a look. We're going to divide this. The beginning of the conflicts. The first four verses deal with the beginning of the conflicts. One and two focus on Persia. Three and four focus on Greece. So let's take a look at it. It begins, Daniel 11, 1. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Verse 1 is really the conclusion of chapter 10. I told you last time, chapter verse 1 of chapter 10 is the completion of the thought in chapter... Remember. The chapter divisions aren't in the Bible, right? We do that so we can find our way. So sometimes we don't do it as good as we ought. Chapter 11, verse 1 is the end of chapter 10. But then he goes on. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than them all. And by his strength and through his riches, he will stir up all against the realm of Greece. This is kind of specific prophecy, okay? There's going to be three more kings. So we've, we see him, Daniel, during this time. The three kings that come after this are Cambyses, Pseudosmyrtus, and Darius Hypostasis. Now, after these three, there's a king that comes on for the Medo-Persians. Not the last king, but a king that comes on, the fourth one, the king that's richer than them all. He has a wife, we know. In fact, her... Her, uh, was it her grandpa? I want to say grandpa for some reason. Anyway, told her, for such a time as this, who knows that you're not here for such a time as this. What's that lady's name? Esther. Who is she married to? Xerxes. Xerxes I was the richest of all the kings of Persia. He's the fourth king, just like the Bible said he would be. Xerxes comes on the scene. Now, what specifically does the Bible say? He's going to be richer than them all. And by his strength and his riches, what's he going to do? Stir up Greece. He's going to stir up Greece. Now you guys remember, think back to the statue, right? Head of gold, chest of silver, bronze, legs of iron. Remember as we work our way down? So we're in the second kingdom at the time of Daniel, right? The Medo-Persian Empire. He's in the chest of silver. But what's coming next? Bronze, right? And he told us earlier in chapter 8 of Daniel that that next kingdom was going to be Greece. 
So what happens? Xerxes is going to start that journey. King Xerxes, million man army, more money than he knew what to do with. And he wanted to, to conquer the world. So he goes over to Greece, where they're minding their own business, and starts poking them with a stick. You guys know the stories, right? He lands his armies. He, you have that, that famous battle that takes place in Thermopylae. I had an opportunity to go there and, and visit the site. The hot gates of Greece. Remember the, the, the fictional story of 300 Spartans holding a million men? It was actually a little more than 300, just so you know. Spartans was the 300 Spartans and 5,000 Greeks. But anyways, they hold this army in the, in the hot gates. Thermopylae, remember, but everybody dies. Xerxes kills them all. He comes and he sacks cities. And what's he do? He pokes Greece with a stick. What does that cause? That beginning causes a rumble in Greece that ultimately is going to lead to a particular player that's going to come on the world scene. What's that player? Alexander the Great. And what do we have? The changing of the guard from the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greek. So verses 1 and 2, he says, this is how it's going to happen. Now there's Xerxes and Artaxerxes. There's other kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. But they're going to be conquered by Alexander. And that's caused because Xerxes pokes them all with a stick. He will stir all against the realm of Greece. Now, now verse 3 begins looking at Greece. Look at it. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. So here we have Alexander. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Now we've already seen this in chapter 8. What happened with Alexander? What did the Bible tell? Now, remember this is all future to Daniel's time. Alexander comes, he conquers, he gets it all. And what happens to him? He dies as a young man, right? Bemoaning the fact that there's nobody left to conquer. And what happens to this great kingdom that he built? It gets divided into four parts. Now, it's not quite as quick and as simple as all that comes together. Um, what happens is uh, Alexander IV and Heracles are two of Alexander's kids. They both get murdered by the generals of Alexander's army who take over Greece. The four generals are Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Now, Seleucus and Ptolemy are the two that we're going to be focused on the rest of the chapter, north and south, north and south, north and south. Everybody with me so far? Everybody got it all? So Alexander's going to take over, going to be divided into four, and they're not going to be as strong as they were before. It says, it's not going to be among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. So the Bible says, when Alexander's kingdom ends, it's not going to go to his kids. What happened? Alexander's kingdom end, where did it go? Four generals. Just like the Bible said. This is a pretty incredible prophecy, guys. It's like reading a history book as we take a look at it. It says, For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now what do we know? His kingdom is going to be uprooted. Remember the statue? Gold, silver, bronze, iron. What do we know about it? The kingdoms of men are always passing. Right? They have feet of clay. You're moving from one to another, to another, to another. Is Alexander's kingdom going to stand? No. They don't stand. The kingdoms of men does not stand. What kingdom lasts forever and ever? The kingdom of God. God's kingdom is eternal. 
Man's kingdom, they're passing. Man's kingdom uh, is an example or a, a picture of man's rebellion against God. So, so we see that when God rules, it's all going to come together. So now, verse 5, we're going to look at the north and the south. Now I don't want you to be confused, but you're going to get confused anyway. Do your best. Okay? Stay with me. Stay with me. Don't get lost. The south is Egypt. The north is Syria. Okay? The south is who? Egypt. The north is? Syria. Syria. Good. The south is Egypt. The north is Syria. The kings of the south are the Ptolemies. Okay? So when you hear me talk about, I'm going to talk about five different Ptolemies. They're all kings of? Egypt. Egypt, right? And Egypt is the kingdom of the south. Now, we go north to Syria. Those are the Seleucids. Put a little slash there. And the Antiochus clan. Those are the kings of the north, which is where? Syria. So as we work our way through, first we're going to kind of focus on the kings of the south and how this all kind of kicks off, all right? So we look at verse 5. It says, Also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him, this prince, and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. So here's what happens. Remember I told you the division of Alexander's kingdom wasn't like just kunk and it was there four parts. You guys know that doesn't work that way, right? It's going to become four parts, but what do they do in the meantime? You think those four generals said, yeah, I'll just take a fourth. And the other general said, yeah, I'll take a fourth too. Let's just cut it up neatly. Or you think they just started boxing in the middle of a room and the winner gets it. Okay, you get what I'm saying? So the Seleucids, which were north, get, get conquered right out the gate. Right out the gate. So this first Ptolemy is Ptolemy Soter. The Savior is what they called him. The first king of the south, Ptolemy Soter. And with him he had a general who was Seleucus Nicator. Seleucus Nicator gets whooped and joins together with Ptolemy. So you have what's going to become the king of the north and the south on the same team. You with me so far? So listen, listen to what the Bible said. The king of the south will become strong as well as one of his princes, his general, Seleucus Nicator. Now, he got strong. He got strong enough to go take his own kingdom. And when he went and took his own kingdom, his kingdom became greater, bigger, than the king of the south. Just like the Bible said. These two characters are Ptolemy Soter and Seleucus Nicator. Now we go to verse 6. And at the end of some years, they will join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. Now we see this in history, right? They call those those arranged marriages, political marriages. Uh, Solomon had like 965 of them or some crazy thing. So when we look at this, he's, this is what's going to happen. They're going to be a daughter who's going to come from the south, which is what country? Egypt is going to marry somebody who's king of the north, which is what country? Syria. Syria. Good. We're doing good so far. <clears throat> it says, but listen, but she will not retain the power of her authority, and neither he or his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up, and those who brought, uh, and those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So, what's that mean? Oh my gosh. Well, let me tell you what happened. 
There's this girl. Her name is, is Berenice. She's the daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus. She is given in marriage to Antiochus II. So Antiochus II uh, marries Berenice. Well, the problem is Antiochus II is already married. He's married to a girl named Laodicea, who's not all that happy about this uh, new marriage to, to unite the kingdoms. So maybe you can guess what might happen. I don't know. Let's take a look. So what happens is, two years after they're married, Ptolemy Philadelphus dies. That's her dad. And so Antiochus II says, well, your dad's dead, dude. You're out. So he leaves her and goes back to Laodicea. Now Laodicea is not too happy about the whole deal. So she poisons Antiochus II and Berenice, and they both die. Now I want you to look at what the Bible said was going to happen. Look at what it says is going to happen. It says they will join forces. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an agreement, a treaty. But she will not retain the power of her authority. So she loses that marriage, and neither he nor his authority will stand. Yeah, Antiochus gets killed too. But she shall be given up, and those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So father, husband, and the daughter, or slash wife, they all die. So the Bible talks about that. It talks about those things happening. But look at verse 7. But it says, but from a branch of her roots. So there's a branch of her roots. This is pretty simple to see, guys. You got Berenice. Her roots are her mother and father. A branch out of her root would be a brother or a sister, right? So a branch from her roots. Look at what it says in verse 7. A branch from her roots shall arise in his place. Who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, deal with them, and prevail. So Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the father of Berenice, was succeeded by Ptolemy Eurygetus, which is the brother of Berenice. This Ptolemy, the brother of Berenice, invaded Syria and put to death Laodicea. So he goes over, fights, gets the, the lady who killed his sister and her husband, and puts her to death. Verse 8, And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So what happens? Ptolemy comes back to Egypt with 40,000 talents of silver and 2,500 idol statues. Historical fact. The Bible says he's going to come back. He's going to come back with a lot of silver. He's going to come back with their gods. What actually happened? He comes back with a lot of silver. And what's he come back with? A lot of gods. Now the Bible also says he'll last longer than the king of the north. Now which country's north? Syria. Which one's south? Okay, the king of the south is Ptolemy's, the king of the north. Seleucus's, alright? You stay with me. Don't get lost. This is a great section of scripture. Okay. Now, verse 9. Also the king of the north shall come to the king of the south, but he'll just return to his own land. So Laosia gets killed. Now there's a king of the north, right? He can't be too happy about that, you think? The king of the south came up and killed Laodicea. So Seleucus Callinicus conducted an invasion of Egypt, but he got whooped and he just had to go home. Just like the Bible said. The king of the north is going to go, but he's not going to prevail. And he's going to return 
home. Now, from verse 10, we start to see the swing of power move from the south in Egypt to the north in Syria. Let's take a look at it. So, verse 10. However, his sons, whose sons? Seleucus, Callinicus, his sons will stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Well, Seleucus Callinicus had two sons. Two sons. Seleucus Serenius and Antiochus the Great. That's also called Antiochus the Third. Okay, so we're on our third Antiochus. Now, just so you know, Antiochus Epiphanes is Antiochus the Fourth. So just one king away from Antiochus Epiphanes. So as we look at it, these two sons, Seleucus Serenius and Antiochus the Great, they stirred up war. Uh, Serenius was killed in Asia Minor, so Antiochus the Great became the main king there in the north. And so he moved through Egyptian territory, captured the Egyptian fortress of Gaza, and Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, offered no resistance. Now think about what the Bible say was going to happen. The sons will stir up strife, assemble a multitude of great forces, so they're two sons, they got two armies, one of them gets defeated, but the other one is able to pass through, what's it say, he will certainly come, overwhelm and pass through Egypt, and return to the fortress to stir up strife. Antiochus the Great. Now on the scene. We have Ptolemy Philopater, who is the king of Egypt. Now verse 11 says, And the king of the south will be moved with rage. So the king of the south, he's angry. The king of Egypt, this Ptolemy, he's moved with rage and will go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude will be given into the hand of his enemy. So Ptolemy Philopater, this is the king of Egypt, the king of the south, he's filled with rage. He amasses an army, 73,000 men. We know he had 5,000 cavalry and 73 elephants. I'm assuming that's like tanks. I don't know. (laughs) So he's got 73 elephants, and he beats Antiochus the Great, okay? He beats Antiochus the Great so that the army of Antiochus ends up in the hands of Ptolemy Philopater. He gets his army. He gets his army. He conquered, just like the Bible said was going to happen. It will be given into the hand of his enemy. But then look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, For the king of the north will come back. He'll return. And he'll muster an even greater multitude than the former. And shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So Antiochus the Great amassed an army over the next 14 years. And he comes back to do battle with the king of the south, and he wins. See, the interesting thing for me, guys, as we look at this, is not, wow, this is a a crazy history lesson. This is all prophetic. This all came to Daniel before any of it happened. People still today say, how do you know that that wasn't written after the fact? Oh, there's this thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You guys heard of that? 1948. A little boy playing by some caves, throws a rock in a cave, hears pottery break, goes in and discovers what we know of today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls predate every Old Testament manuscript that we had at the time by a thousand years. That makes it pretty early. You with me? 
what we discover is, as, as early as 270 B.C., the book of Daniel is complete and a part of what we know today as the Septuagint. All of these events are taking place after that. So even if you make Daniel be written in the 270s instead of what I would say roughly in the 600s when Daniel lived, you're still prophetic. You get what I'm saying? No matter what you do, you can't come to Daniel and make, put Daniel in front of it as though it all already happened and he's just writing a history of it. No, what it is is prophetic. And what is God telling us? He's the master of history. He knows where all the pieces fit. He knows where it all goes together. He knows how it all ties up. And all of history is moving to a conclusion. What's that conclusion? Mankind is constantly clamoring for a king. Give us a king. Give us a king. Give us a king. Any different in our country? Right now, what are we clamoring for? We want a president, right? Give us a president. Give us a president. We want a king. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And what God is telling us throughout His Word is that He's the king. And every king we have is going to be a greater and greater example. Many of the kings we have will be a greater and greater example of rebellion against God. And ultimately culminating with the worst king ever. We call that guy the Antichrist. <laughs> yes, I know. Obama's not the Antichrist. <clears throat> and as scary as it may seem, it's possible to have something worse. <laughs> I won't tell you which one of the running mates, but one of them is worse than him, just so you know. Okay, but God's bringing it all to a conclusion. Now, all the governments of men, they're clamoring for all these things. And no matter who they raise up, eventually you end up with somebody in utter rebellion against God until what happens? Until the King of Kings, God of Gods, Lord of Lords is here and He sets up His kingdom which will never pass away. You'll have perfect justice. All the things we long for are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, God's telling us this all the way through Daniel as He lays out this whole prophetic section of scripture that we look at that we're looking at so let's look it says now verse uh, uh after verse 13 verse 14 it says now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south even violent men of your own people now who's daniel he's a jew so he's an israelite even though he's not in the land so when he says violent violent uh, ones of your own people who's he talking about Violent Jewish men are going to do what? They're going to, they're going to join this king. Let's take a look at it. Now in those times, many will rise against the king of the south. So Ptolemy Philopater died. Right after the battle, 14 years later, when Antiochus the Great beats him, that's the third Antiochus, <clears throat> Ptolemy Philopater dies, and he leaves his five-year-old son as king. I told you it can always get worse. Now, what do you think all the other nations that they held sway over did when a five-year-old was king? What does the Bible say was going to happen? The Bible says, in those days, many will rise up against the king of the south. So they see a five-year-old as king. A lot of people come up against him and rise up against him. So <clears throat> we see... Uh, uh, this weakness in Egypt, and they're trying to, to get it. So what happens is, Jews ally together. 
they come together and are on the same side as Antiochus the Great. So the Jews join in the fight. Now here's what we got to understand. Every time the king of the north and the king of the south fight each other, guess who's in the middle? Israel. Every time, so every time we read, the king of the, of the north went and fought the king of the south, where did he pass through? Israel. They don't just walk through all nice, hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah, we're just headed up here to fight. No, they just beat everybody up all the way there until somebody stops them, and then they come back and do what? Beat them up again because they lost, and they go back home. And then the north comes down, and what do they do? Same thing, beat them up. So there's this, this crazy ongoing battle is causing havoc for Israel. So some of the people of Israel join with Antiochus the Great. That's what the scripture's laying out. Some violent men of your own are going to join. But look what it says. But they shall, what's it say? Fall. They don't make it. They don't make it. So verse 15. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound. King of the north. North is Syria, right? So we're talking about Syria. King of the north will come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south will not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. Now listen to this. As Antiochus came against Egypt, remember the king of, of Egypt is five years old. So he's probably not going to battle, right? So he sends what? His choice men. Who's his choice men? General Scopus. General Scopus goes out to do battle with Antiochus the Great. But he cannot stand and is defeated by Antiochus at Sidon. Just like the Bible said, even his choice troops, even the best that he's got, won't be able to stand against the king of the north. Verse 16, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. So Antiochus the Great, who the Jews helped, but they don't make it through the battle, those guys die. He ends up being king, he's, he's conquered uh, much of Egypt, and then he comes to the glorious land. The glorious land is always Israel. Remember I told you, they're always passing through, one way or the other, taking a piece of Israel with them. When they do, he stands in Israel, Antiochus the Great, as the authority, the guy with the, the power in his hands to destroy or build, right in the glorious land. So he's there in Israel. Even though Israel uh, aided him against Egypt. Now look at verse 17. And he shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus he will do. And he will give him the daughter of woman uh, to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or be with him. So Antiochus is determined to completely destroy Egypt. So he develops a plan. There's still a king in Egypt. He's a little older now. He was five when he started. Now we move forward a little bit in time. And Antiochus the Great decides he's going to give his daughter to, to the king of Egypt. They're going to get married. His daughter will side with him and he'll end up with a whole kingdom. You with me? You guys all know the daughter's name. You all know Antiochus the Great's daughter's name. Cleopatra. He gives Cleopatra only what happens. Cleopatra loves her husband more than her dad. So her dad's thinking it's going to work out for him, but she won't stand with him. What the Bible say was going to happen? The Bible said that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to give her, she's going to go, but she's not going to stand with her dad. And that whole thing is going to fall 
apart. Not the way Antiochus the Great wanted it to come together. And that's exactly what took place. Now verse 18. After this, he will turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So look what happens. Remember earlier we were reading and it talked about uh, Xerxes poking Greece with a stick, which was the beginning of the next kingdom taken over? Well, here's the beginning of the, of the final kingdom of the statue, the legs of iron, which symbolize what nation? You remember? Rome. So, they move to the, to the coastlands of the Mediterranean. Antiochus the Great takes his army, coastlands of the Mediterranean and the islands of the Mediterranean, and they bump into a, a fledgling country that's just kind of getting their legs underneath them called Rome. And he gets whooped. And they send him home. And we start to see the decline of Greece and the rise of Rome. Antiochus the Great is the instrument through which that takes place. So, if, as, he come, as he's coming home, <clears throat> um, the Roman Lucius Scipio makes him sign the Treaty of Apamea. The Treaty of Apamea required that Greece, Antiochus the Great, pay Rome a thousand talents a year. A thousand talents of gold. It's a lot of gold. So that, this was this, this uh, part of the treaty. So I don't wipe you out. You've got to pay us a thousand talents of gold. So where do you think is the first place he tries to go get it? Remember Israel had this temple? What was in that? A lot of gold, right? A lot of gold. The first place he tries to go. Well, look what the Bible says in verse 19. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and not be found. So he has this humiliating defeat. He's going back. He's got to go back home. He's trying to figure out, how am I going to pay for all this stuff? How am I going to pay for all these things? And while he's planning and thinking about all of these things, he gets this idea. I know what we'll do. The, the, the legend tells us they tried to break into the temple in Jerusalem. And this is legend, by the way. This is not in the Bible. He goes and he sees a bunch of angels around it, so he doesn't take it. So he comes back and he sees the temple of Zeus in his own land, in his own uh, capital, and he says, I'll just rob the temple of Zeus. And his own people, while he's trying to rob the temple of Zeus, kill him. And that's the end of Antiochus the Great. So, Antiochus the Great is going to pass. He will stumble and fall and not be found. He's killed in the process of pillaging the temple of Zeus. Then you have verse 20. Look at it. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Now remember I told you, what do they got to pay? A thousand talents of gold a year to Rome. So they got to dig up some gold someplace. So what do they do? They tax who? The glorious land. Who's the glorious land? Israel, right? They tax Israel. They're going to strip the gold. They're going to take the gold. They're going to do whatever they can to get the gold out of Israel. So they impose taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he will be destroyed, but not in anger 
or in battle. So the next guy, the king after Antiochus III, is another Seleucus. Seleucus uh, comes on the scene, Seleucus IV. But he doesn't reign very long, because his tax collector poisons him, and he dies, and the tax collector takes over for a brief period of time. Now, here's what's interesting, guys. We come down through this time. When Antiochus the Great lost to Rome, Rome took captives. Captives of his armies, captives of his children. And one of those captives is Antiochus Epiphanes, who goes to Rome as a prisoner, and later on is going to get sent back home. From Rome... Many people think he, he comes up with this idea for the tax collector to poison the Seleucus the, the fourth so that he'll die and Antiochus Epiphany can come on to the scene. Now here's what we see. These first 20 verses are pretty incredible with how they just... You take a history book and read right next to it. Exactly what's taking place. Exactly what's going on. So when we consider that... And we consider Antiochus Epiphanes, it's no wonder that Paul, in writing his letter to Thessalonica, to the Jews that were there, to the people there in Thessalonica, he said to them, These things haven't already happened. Because for the Jews, the greatest Antichrist ever to come had already come. What was his name? Antiochus Epiphany. So when they look at the future events that are taking place, they say, well, it's all happened. It already took place. So you guys can leave there. We're not coming back to Daniel 11. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And look what Paul says to Thessalonica who thought all these things had already happened. Why? Because they thought they were all fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphany. So look what Paul writes to them. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ has already come. Look, these things haven't already happened. Jesus hasn't already returned. It's not all fulfilled in Antiochus. There's an event yet future. Look at what he says. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Or literally, the rebellion. Unless the rebellion comes first. So there's a, a rebellion, a, a, a large rebellion that takes place uh, against the Lord in those days. And what's next? The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. As we move forward in a study on Wednesday night in the book of Revelation, there are people who have a view of Revelation called uh, a preterist view. You guys ever heard of that? Preterist just means past. A preterist believes it's all already happened. What's Paul saying in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to the Thessalonians? He's saying, look, these things haven't happened yet. The preterists, what do they point back to? Two events, Antiochus Epiphanes and the destruction of the temple. But what does Paul point to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? When Paul says, here's how you're going to know things are happening. There's going to be a great rebellion, right? A falling away, he calls it, an apostasia, 
a great rebellion, and there's going to be the man of sin, the son of perdition, who's going to sit in the temple of God and call himself God. Those things, they did happen with Antiochus. He did sit in the Holy of Holies and declare himself to be God. But that was in 200, uh, 164, I think, 167 to 164 B.C. When did Paul write Thessalonians? The 50s, roughly, the 50 A.D. Paul said, that's not it. There's another guy coming. Some people want to point to the destruction of Rome. Well, it's when Rome destroyed the temple. Well, listen, nobody from Rome sat in the Holy of Holies and said, I'm God. The, the temple was destroyed in Rome because a, a, a soldier shot an arrow that was on fire. It went in through a window of the temple, caught the curtains on fire, and the temple burned down. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. What happened? The fire got so hot, the gold melted. Where did it go? In between all the stones. So what happened to the stones? They got turned over to get to what? The gold that was melting. Just like Jesus said. The prophecies of God are perfect and exact. So when we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it gives us this event, this event has not occurred yet. So that event requires a few things, right? It requires the building of a temple somehow. It requires a, a world leader to come on the scene. Daniel told us the kingdoms of God were going were to move from gold to silver to bronze to iron. And then you had feet with ten toes, remember? Iron mixed with clay. Iron mixed with clay. It's where people get the concept of a revived Roman Empire coming on the scene. Now, when we think about revived Roman Empire, everybody wants to think about Europe. It don't have to be Europe. You know how big Rome was? That covered most of the Middle East. A revived empire from which you're going to have <coughs> ten toes, ten divisions. Those things are all future. They're all future. That's what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. Look, guys, this hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. Look at verse 5 of Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? So do you realize when Paul was going around planting churches, he was teaching them about eschatology, about the fulfillment of prophecy, about what would happen in the end of days? He says, don't you guys remember I was with you? I told you about this stuff. I told you that this wasn't something that was fulfilled in the past, but something that's yet future, and so that it is still coming. And listen to what he says. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Who's the he? The he goes back to the nearest antecedent. The nearest antecedent is the son of perdition. Who's keeping the son of perdition from, being, from appearing? Who's holding back the Antichrist? Who's holding back that final world leader? The Bible's clear. He who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit's been restraining since the time of Daniel. Since Antiochus Epiphanes, the Holy Spirit has been restraining. Why? Listen, guys. Mankind's, uh, mankind's desire is to spin out of control and make more and more chaos. No? Just look at your own life. You make all your own decisions, do whatever you want. Does your life keep getting better? What's our natural tendency? I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm the only one. My natural tendency is to put one bad decision after another one. 
If I do what I want to do, I got one bad decision, another bad decision, pretty soon I'm, I'm swimming in the midst of a bunch of bad decisions, which is leading me to chaos. A life that is not controlled by Jesus Christ is always moving from wherever it's at to greater chaos. A world apart from Jesus Christ is always moving from where it is to greater chaos. And if God didn't restrain it, we'd have wiped ourselves out already. You ever think of the mindset of the fellows that lit up the first nuke? There's a, there's a movie, Fat Man and Little Boy. It talks about the first two nuclear weapons. just want you to th- just contemplate this idea. When the scientists lit it off, in the first test explosion of a nuclear device, you know that they both said, we're not sure the chain reaction will stop. Chew on that for a minute. Yeah, we're not really sure this will stop. After I push this button, we might all just go down in a big ball of fire. And they mashed the button anyhow. Because that's what men does, right? Oh, it's boom, big fire. Cool. Why, why haven't we destroyed ourselves yet? Because he who restrains is still restraining The Holy Spirit is restraining man from destruction. For what? For what purpose? You know, the Bible tells us. The Bible lays it out so that we can understand it, guys. But listen to what happens. Only he now restrains will do so till he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So look. That final world leader is not coming until the Holy Spirit stops restraining. Currently, the Holy Spirit restrains through the church. Where is the Holy Spirit to take up residence on earth today? In those who believe. So the Bible says He's going to restrain until He's taken out of the way. But you know, Jesus made you a promise. He said, I won't leave you orphans. I'll give to you the Holy Spirit and I will never take Him away. So he can't pull the Holy Spirit out without doing what? Taking the church with him. Taking the church with him. We call that the the rapture. The rapture of the church. For we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That event is what opens up the doors for the revealing of, of the Antichrist. So if the church would do me a favor. If they'd stop trying to find him. Because as long as you're here. You're not going to find him. And it, nowhere does the Bible say. You know what. You really need to find the Antichrist. No. What the church needs to be doing. Is telling people about Jesus Christ. Not the false king. The real king. You with me? So. Listen. So you can get the idea. Of why they might think. That these things had already been fulfilled. Okay. I'm going to read. I got like three minutes. I think I can do it. Okay, so <clears throat> Daniel chapter 7. Just remember, just, I'm, I'm just going to touch on it. Remember, thus he said, the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom of the earth, this is Rome, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it to pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from out of this kingdom. Out of, that means post-Rome. The ten toes, the ten horns, 
post Rome, will come out of, spring forth from the kingdom of Rome. And then another will come after them. He will be different than the first ones. He's not going to look like those first ten kings. He'll subdue three. He'll speak pompous words against the Most High. Persecute the saints of the Most High. Intend to change times in the law. And the saints will be given into his hand for time, times, and a half time. Three and a half years. The saints being the nation of Israel are going to be put in to the hands of the Antichrist. That hasn't happened. Daniel chapter 7 is future. He's a future king. A previous shadow or picture of him was Antiochus Epiphanes. The Bible has been prophesying a coming king who is extremely smooth and blasphemy, uh, blasphemous against God and going to enslave God's people. That's that final Antichrist. A picture of him were given in earlier scriptures that deal with Antiochus Epiphany. Daniel chapter 8, 23. And in the latter times of their kingdom, when transgressors have reached their fullness, a king will arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. Daniel chapter 8 is dealing with the kingdom of Greece. It says, so in their time, in the time of Greece, now Daniel chapter 7 was whose time? The fourth beast, which is who? Rome. Fourth beast is Rome. Daniel chapter 7, dealing with a future Antichrist. Daniel chapter 8, dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes out of Greece. Two different kingdoms, guys. One comes out of Rome, one comes out of Greece. Daniel chapter 8 says he's going to come. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He'll destroy. He will prosper and thrive. He'll destroy the mighty and the holy people. That's the nation of Israel. This is Daniel. Who's Daniel writing to? The nation of Israel, to the Jews. Through his cunning, he will cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he will exalt himself in his heart. And he shall destroy many. He will even rise against the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. So seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Daniel's not going to see any of it, is he? He's not going to see Antiochus. He's not going to see the second one, the third one, or the fourth one. He says, Daniel, seal it up. It's not for your time. It's not for your time. These events are many days in the future. He tells us in in Daniel 8, 13, I heard a holy one speaking. A holy one. It's an angel. And another holy one saying to that other one who was speaking, How long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression, the abomination of desolation, the giving of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled? And he said, 2,300 days and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Antiochus Epiphanes' rule lasted somewhere around six and a half years. You know how many days that is? 2,300 days. So when the time Antiochus gets going and all these things start happening and the abomination of desolation and the desecration of the temple, just like the Bible said, last 2,300 days and then the temple is cleansed. So we look at these, we look at these prophecies and we see them, we go, look, the ones in the past happened exactly like you said they would, so the ones that are yet future are going to happen just like he says they will. That's why we look at the ones in the past, guys. That's why we look at those things. It's not just so I can bore you with uh, Egyptian and Syrian history. But so that I can say, look, because the Bible said this was going to happen, and it did. And 
because the Bible said Antiochus Epiphanes was going to come, and he did. And because the Bible said there's another one coming after him, he will come. Just like the word said. So we look at all this and we say, the Holy Spirit's restraining since the time of Daniel. The Holy Spirit's restraining today. What's he waiting for? What's he waiting for? How come he hasn't let us nuke ourselves out of existence? How come history continues to move forward? Well, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it'll give you the answer. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should do what? Come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat? So what are we supposed to do about it? He says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot or blameless. How are we supposed to be found? What are we supposed to do? The world, all these things are going crazy and the prophecies are wild and there's more yet to come. The Bible's talking about one day the earth's going to melt and the heavens will burn away. So what should we do? He says, be found in peace without spot, blameless. How can we be found in peace without spot and blameless? You've got to be in Christ. Because if you're not in Christ, you're not any of those things. But if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You have the peace of God which surpasses. We can trust, we can know, we can believe. Nevertheless, according to the promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore... Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. What's God been waiting for? To save. Look, God's desire is not, I'm going to destroy as many as I can. What's God's desire? He says, to save. I want to save as many as I can. I want to save. So what has God been waiting for? To save. To save. And how does He choose to do that? Through you and I. We're that conduit. We're that conduit to reach into a world that is lost. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking many things, some which are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. And they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this already beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness and be led away to the error of the wicked. Rather, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That's what we're supposed to do. 
with the information that God has given us that we see as history that he provided as prophecy. Amen? Why don't you stare at me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the incredible scriptures that you lay out for us. We, We look one verse after another after another just laying out for us the history of the Egyptian and Syrian armies out of the Greece Empire fighting each other. Just like you said. And what does it picture for us? But the rebellion of mankind against one another and against you. And as long as that is occurring, there will be no peace until we find peace in Jesus Christ. Man's bent to do wrong. But Jesus Christ is able to fix our brokenness. To help make us right. That we might stand righteous in Him and through Him. And that our great desire would be looking forward to the real King. The return of the true King. When righteousness will reign. God, we hold fast to your promises, Lord. And we know if these are true, all these little uh, uh, um, matters we'd see just happen perfectly, exactly how you intended for them to happen. If that's all true, then all these other promises that we hold to are also true. They will also happen exactly like you said they will. Lord, I pray that we would realize that we can hold on to those, and that we would recognize that He who restrains does so through us now today. And that that's our responsibility to say, look man, God was right about all this stuff, and He's right about what is yet to come. And our great hope is not anybody but Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that we would send forth uh, just the the truth of Your Word. God, that, that men and women would bring themselves into submission to it. That we would say, man, I want to stand in peace without spot and blameless. And when he finds me, I want him to find me in peace without spot and blameless because I'm in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, I want to be like Christ. I want to obey the things he tells me to obey. I want to be the way he tells me to be. I want to see as many Come to salvation as possible. So God, you've given us another day. I pray we, your people, would use it to glorify you as king. We give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.